I predict a comfortable victory. I predict he soon will be on some ship. I predict no one will even know I'm gone until the files start to build. And I predict that when the fight is set, he might not show. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, the power of prediction. Is your brain like a camera that records the world or a projector that imposes pictures on it? What if our senses are just making things up? We had almost that exact conversation last week. Yeah, but Abed posted this video two weeks ago. What? That boy's a soothsayer. How much do your expectations affect what you see? I know what you're gonna say. You watch my movies on the website. He's a witch! Get him! No, I'm not a witch. I'm a student of human character. I know you guys also well. I can predict your behavior. I don't like the tagline, perception is controlled hallucination. Our guest is Andy Clark, author of The Experience Machine. I rather prefer the idea that hallucination is uncontrolled perception. The power of prediction. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. On Wednesday, May 3rd, join us at the Stanford Humanities Center for a live recording of Philosophy Talk. We'll be asking, Can Art Save Us? with Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. This event is free and open to the public. Everybody welcome. More information at philosophytalk.org. That's Wednesday, May 3rd at 7 p.m. at the Stanford Humanities Center. Can't wait to see you there. Is the brain a prediction machine? What if our senses are just making things up as they go along? Can we predict our way to a happier life? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're thinking about the power of prediction. You know, Ray, our minds are amazing prediction machines, and sometimes they can even make their predictions come true. <laughs> what are you, Josh? Some kind of believer in, like, the secret? If you believe something hard enough, ooh, you're going to manifest. It's just going to drop down out of the heavens and into your hands. Oh, God, no. I'm just talking about the kind of thinking we do all the time. Nothing mystical, nothing magical. If it isn't magical, how are you going to make your predictions come true? Well, imagine you're a little thirsty and there's a nice you know, glass of lemonade in front of you. You, you imagine reaching your hand out and grabbing the glass. You, you predict the way it's going to feel when you bring it to your face and take a sip. Then you do it. You make your prediction come true. Yeah, but it didn't come true because I predicted it. It came true because I did it. Fair enough. Okay, but let's take a different example. Stereotype threat. I mean, so women, for example, often get told they're no good at mathematics. And, and unfortunately, some of them internalize that prejudice. And guess what? As a result, they do worse at math. So if you predict you're going to do poorly, you do worse. If you predict you're going to do well, you do better. Yeah, okay, that is pretty worrying. It, it kind of sounds like prediction is a dangerous thing. So maybe we should just ditch all of our faulty predictions and stick with the data. But those data are affected by our predictions. Like if you did a study of U.S. mathematicians in 1980, you'd find there were very few women in the field. And that was because people thought women couldn't be mathematicians. In other words, bad predictions. So the predictions skewed the data. Okay, but there are other ways of gathering more data. Let's go back to your example of mathematicians in the 1980s. Over in Eastern Europe, there were just tons of female mathematicians, and they were doing good work. If people only bothered to look at all of the evidence, they'd have to adjust their expectations. Maybe, but, you know, even the evidence of your senses isn't entirely immune to the power of prediction. Oh, come on. Surely I can trust what I see with my own eyes. Seeing is believing, right? No, seeing is predicting. 
And so is hearing. Listen to this clip of somebody saying green needle. Okay, I heard the person saying green needle. So what? Okay, now listen to the same person saying brainstorm. Yes, I heard them saying brainstorm too. What is your point? Well, my point is those were exactly the same clip, but but you heard it differently each time because you were expecting different things. That shows that whenever you sense something, you're really just predicting. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Sometimes, sure, I make mistakes because of my predictions, but those are weird cases. I mean, when's the last time somebody said green needle or brainstorm to you in a distorted voice in a situation where there's literally no context to guide you? Yeah, that's true. There's usually more context, but context is exactly what we use to make our predictions. Everything's prediction, Ray. No, that just cannot be right. Predictions are based on observations. And you're telling me that all of our observations are unreliable. You just have predictions based on predictions based on predictions. How are you ever going to be able to even find your glass of lemonade? You're going to die of thirst, all thanks to your terrible theory. <laughs> well, I predict that our guest will change your mind. It's Andy Clark, professor of cognitive philosophy at the University of Sussex. But first, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Sarah Lai Sterland, to talk to neuroscientists who have been using the predictive brain in their research on some long-standing problems. She files this report. Every day, we go about our lives assuming that we perceive a shared reality. But can we really trust that we're all perceiving our environments in exactly the same way? Take a listen to this. For my part, I heard virus, but after a few repetitions, I started hearing Boris. You might have heard something different. The sound is an audio illusion. No words at all, just a bunch of random sounds. Our individual interpretations of the sounds is an example of what neuroscientists call the predictive mind in action. It's the mind's best guess at what's happening. The main idea with those auditory illusions is that the sensory information coming into our brains is perceived by us based on what we know about the world. That's Corianne Rogalski, a neuroscientist at Arizona State University. And it makes me think that maybe I heard virus and then Boris because of what's been happening in the past three years with the pandemic and a former British prime minister. I say to all the doubters, dude, we try and form words out of sounds that may not even physically, energy-wise, have those sounds in them. We do that because we are making predictions that auditory stimuli coming into our ears should be grouped together in a way that's meaningful for us. Rogowski studies how our brains perceive language and music. She says two things happen when we experience the world. First, we get a sensation, which is a change in physical energy, such as the sound waves coming into our ears. And then we convert that into uh, neural energy, our neurons in our brain firing. However, after sensation comes perception. But that perception is highly dependent on previous experience and rules that our brain has built about the way the world works and our conscious and unconscious expectations about how the world is organized and how it works. 
This is how our brains perceive our environment with all of our five senses. The predictive brain has launched mind-bending new research. Neuroscientists are exploring everything from how we perceive physical touch, to how we form our beliefs, to how we can help stroke victims to communicate fluently again. To provide them with additional cues um, that typically aren't necessary, but very explicit cues uh, to indicate that a phrase has ended or it's their turn to speak or there's going to be an important piece of information coming up. So just sort of provide a crutch um, to help them with that prediction. Do the predicting for them. We start relying on our predictive brains from the moment we're born. Our minds must decide what information, like which syllables and sounds, are likely the most important to pay attention to in order to learn. So for example, if you're a baby and you're learning a language, you start out by keeping track of the sounds in your language. You build up over time, you track those statistics, and you eventually learn what the rules are for what syllables are. Celeste Kidd is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. And you just keep building up like that with bigger and bigger components until you are able to uh, speak a language and communicate with others. Her lab researches learning, language, and belief formation. Audio illusions, like the one you heard at the beginning of this story, illustrate how we can block out relevant information if our predictive minds decide that it's probably not important. Over the years, Kidd has realized how her own brain's filtering mechanism has landed her in the dangerous situation of not noticing pain. I gave a talk once, and then after I was talking with somebody, and they're like, um, you have blood from your ear, my eardrum ruptured, which can happen, apparently, if you have an ear infection. And I didn't even notice. It was a really good conversation. <laughs> One of the most intriguing areas of research that almost anyone can relate to is flavor. It's well established that flavor results from a combination of our perceptions of smell and taste. But researchers who study smell think that it could be possible to manipulate our senses to get us to eat more vegetables. There's this idea out there, can we make broccoli taste like chocolate or have the flavor of chocolate? <laughs> Jess Carnwell, a postdoc at the California Institute of Technology, has some high hopes for the emerging field of neurogastronomy. If we were able to make foods that would normally be unattractive, uh, bitter, but still that are healthy and important for us to eat, if we could alter their flavor so that they do become attractive and exciting to eat. You like broccoli? Yes. You like it with a lot of cheese? Sadly, this idea involves so many areas of scientific study that nobody has come up with a sensory hack yet. And it just goes to show, for now at least, that there are in fact limits to the truism, mind over matter. Finish your vegetables. He doesn't like broccoli. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Sarah Lai Sterland. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.